Thanks, John. It's uh, always a good day to be at Redemption Hill, and uh, my history with your church actually begins before I ever took on this role and moved to Boston some five years ago. Prior to this, I was the pastor about an hour north of here in Concord, New Hampshire, and I'd heard about Redemption Hill while I was pastor, and while you were still meeting at Spring Step back in 2012, uh, my wife and I showed up on a Sunday morning, and before I knew any other church planter here in Boston to take on the role that I now have, it was a privilege to just sit in and see what God was doing with you even almost seven years ago, I guess it was, maybe even after your first soccer nights. I just remember there were a lot of kids that morning. But it's, uh, it's great to be here, and I've had the privilege to be here before and with you and, and want to just kind of take a, a cue from all the people who have been speaking through this summer. I love, love, love uh, your pastor and Marsha and uh, when he extended the invitation, the invite, it was an easy yes. All I had to do was look at my calendar, and I said, I'll figure it out. We'll be there. And then uh, John, uh, working alongside him with Jensen, I've said it so many different ways. We would not be able to do what we do through Jensen and the students without him, his leadership. And you experience that on a weekly basis, what God has chosen to do through him. Now, I, uh, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where you just have that sense that something big or important or you know, significant is about to happen in your life. You like those moments. They're not always as frequent as you would like them to be, but there are moments when you think maybe things are beginning to come together. Maybe what we've longed for, waited for, it's about, it's about to happen. Uh, I, I think about uh, whenever we anticipated the birth of all three of our children, I mean, you know what it's like. Uh, I know there are a lot of parents here. And if you've gone through that experience, kind of the build up, the build up, and the build it, and you just get to the place where you're just like, it's going to happen now. And you, it, at first, it's a little bit scary. If you, it's the first time around. I can remember our first child. I mean, I, I drove home from the hospital 10 miles an hour because I just was afraid something might happen on the way home. And by the time we got to our third one, uh, it was like, yeah, we've done this before. We know the routine. But we had no idea how big of a deal it was going to be. In fact, my wife is five foot two. She weighs just uh, a little bit under, uh, I won't tell you how much, but she doesn't weigh much. But uh, long story short, I caught myself in just in time. But the whole thing was, you know, we were in Knoxville, Tennessee, where as you can tell, as you're going to hear a little bit of my voice, even though I've lived in the Northeast for 10 years, I'm still a son of the South, and it slips in every once in a while, but we were living in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time, and we were uh, anticipating the birth of our third child. It was going to be a boy, uh, or we'd hoped it was going to be a boy. We didn't know, but we were hoping uh, we were going to have a boy, and boy, did we have a boy, 11-pound, uh, 11 11-ounce 11 boy. It was a big deal. Uh, we, we never imagined it was a, a, quite a moment for us, a big moment. So there was anticipation for something big, and it was a whole lot bigger than, than what we imagined. And that was a great moment for us. And we've had other moments like that, and you've been in places where you could just feel the anticipation rising in the crowd. Friday night, I was at Fenway with my brother, and we were watching the Red Sox play. And after Mookie had hit his second and third home run, the whole crowd was standing up. Why? Because history was about to be made, they thought. And everybody was anticipating. He didn't hit a fourth one. He hit a double. But still, it was a, a moment. You've got that sense. 
Now, those are just uh, uh, examples, hopefully, that start your mind thinking and moving down a path that we're going to spend the rest of the morning on. And that path is, is it possible that God really has something great in mind that's about to happen in my life, in our life, in our church? Is it possible that maybe right now we're on the cusp of seeing something far beyond what we've experienced before, something maybe that we've imagined, we've been waiting for, deep down inside of it, uh, there are days when we dream of it happening in our personal lives, within our family, within our relationships, within the place where we work, or just life itself with our kids. We're just anticipating And one of the things about God that I think we sometimes overlook is that whenever God gets ready to do something in our lives that's great, something that's beyond what maybe we've experienced so far, that we long to see that that just hasn't happened, we hear about the promises of God and we want those promises to become reality in our lives, what God does, it's in those minds, he calls us to be ready for it. He calls us to kind of elevate our game, so to speak. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it means on our side of it. If God's promises are over here, and this is our life over here, and we're looking at the promises and we're saying, I so long for that to happen one day, what needs to happen to us over here to be ready to step in to the great things that God has in mind for us? Okay? All right? So if you're, you're with me on that, I want to pray, and then we're going to step into a, an ancient narrative that will really set us up for this whole message, okay? Let's pray. Father, we, we can't ever get to the place where uh, we should just think that uh, this is good as it gets. Father, uh, every day with you, if we know you in a deep personal way, and some here this morning may be just exploring what that means like, And they need to hear that every day with you is is a life-giving adventure. That doesn't mean the circumstances are always great. It doesn't always mean that we, in our own way of seeing things, uh, that we see clearly. But if we understand anything about our relationship with you, it should be full of a, a sense of anticipation Every single day of our lives. Uh, Even this morning as I was reading from the psalmist where he cried out, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. There's that sense. It's a brand new day and God is going to load new mercies and kindnesses into my life. But more than that, He is going to do something possibly that I've never experienced before. And I would pray that in this Sunday morning gathering, this sacred hour, so to speak, this moment, this time we've set aside for you, we would lean in and there would be this sense of maybe, maybe, maybe today, something God may show me, God may take me, to a promise I've only imagined. So thank you 
for the gift of your son, which is the ultimate promise that makes all the other promises come together. We love you and we thank you. We get to speak this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's find this ancient Old Testament narrative. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me or just follow up on the screen. This passage of Scripture found, or it's more, I hate to call it a passage of Scripture. Uh, and let me pause here for a second. I want to say this and I, and before we jump into it. Every time you pick up the Bible or any time you read it or scroll on it in your device, the subtitle of the Bible is this, trust me. Think about that. Every time you pick it up, subtitle, trust me. God's inviting you into a story today, and the subtitle of the uh, story is, trust me. All right? So let's follow along. In Joshua chapter 3, this is where we'll pick up this ancient narrative and begin to see what God has for each of us. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, he's setting up the story here about what's to happen. At the end of three days, they've heard this word, and the previous part of the story is they got a word that it's time to move out. At the end of the three days, the, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as, that's a great little phrase, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you should set out from your place and follow it. The ark of the covenant, there's a lot of bit of conversation, and some of you may say, yeah, I know what that is. I've seen all of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where the ark of the covenant was this sacred box, and with inside of it were three different items. There was manna, there was Aaron's rod, and there were the Ten Commandments. And each one of those represented in some way God's guiding presence. The manna represented God's provision for the children of Israel. And the, the budding rod represented the fact that God would provide leadership through individuals. And then the ideal of the Ten Commandments was he would give specific direction on how our lives are to be lived out in reflection of his desire for us. So the sacred box represents God's presence. So keep that in mind every time it's referenced here. Let's go a little bit further, beginning at verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. That's about a half a mile to two-thirds of a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. And I love this next phrase. For you have not passed this way. You've never been here before. This is brand new. Anticipation. Build up. And then he goes on, and we're going to come back and really spend a lot of time on this next verse. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Another translation says the Lord will do the amazing. Verse 6. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, and this was in the quietness of his own heart. And you have to remember, Joshua had been mentored by Moses. Moses isn't on the scene anymore because Moses has died. But nothing of God has died. But Moses had mentored Joshua. Moses 
perhaps being the greatest leader of all time in the history of the nation of Israel in terms of his uh, challenging leadership responsibility, Joshua has grown up underneath him. The mantle of leadership has now been placed on him, but he hasn't been tested just yet. If you read in the earlier parts of this ancient narrative, you'll hear God saying to Joshua, be strong, be of good courage. Joshua's overwhelmed, no doubt, with the task that is before him. But here's what God says to him. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What he's saying there is, I'm going to show them that even though you're a flawed individual like all leaders, whenever you follow my heart, they better follow you. They can trust you. Then he says, beginning at verse 8, And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Setting things up here again. Verse 9, And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, This is how you shall know, this is how we're going to know, that the living God is among you, and that he will be without fail... Dry, and he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perazzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Let me just give you a phrase for what that may mean for us in a contemporary setting. The surrounding culture that's hostile to everything that God is up to. So you've got a surrounding culture that's going to be the opposition that is going to push back. The last thing they want is for Israel to to come to where they are, to prevail. And yet, here we have that promise. And then verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan, parentheses, better get this, this is big part of the story. Now the Jordan overflows at its banks throughout the time of harvest. Something to understand about a little geograph, geography here. The Jordan River was 150 miles long. Typically, most all the time, the river was probably maybe 90 feet wide, maybe like a two-lane highway. It was not very wide at all. Deep most of the time, three to six feet. Here's Joshua with probably anywhere from one to three million, not for sure exact number, of Israelites going to cross over. So you're thinking to yourself, no big deal. They're crossing over. It's only 90 feet, three to six feet. Everybody can get across this, except he adds in parentheses, it was at the harvest time. What happened during harvest time to that water was that it went from being 90 feet wide to being one mile wide. And the water 
swelled up to where it was anywhere from 10 to 20 feet deep. It was at flood stage. The melted snow from the surrounding mountains cascaded down into the Jordan River, and it swelled to the point where it looked something like this. It's just a very kind of a rough little image of what really was they experienced. So for three days, the children of Israel are standing there, and they're watching all of this rushing water. There's no way they can get around. It's 150 miles. There were no bridges, needless to say. Bridges weren't even uh, come on the scene until the, the time of the Romans. Uh, maybe you could get one or two people across it, but a million to three million people across? So what, is that, what does that conjure up in your mind? This is what? Impossible. This is uncrossable. And yet, what has he told them? I want you to go put your feet in the water, and I want you to go to the other side. Let's go on with the story. Let's continue reading. So, verse 16, picking up from verse 15, and it says, To the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above, and stood and rose up in a heap very far away, about Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. And now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passed over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. What happened? About 19 miles up from where they were, God stopped the waters in a big heap. But none of that happened, as we're going to see. None of that happened instantaneously. There, God was getting ready to do. Now watch this. God was getting ready to do something that he had promised 400 years earlier to a man by the name of Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And one day, that great nation the sign of my promise and favor is you're going to be given a land. And he gave him the dimensions of the land. It was the very place we just described here. You're going to inherit. That's the promising future you have. Generation after generation after generation waited. The promise didn't happen. Generation would come. Generation would go. Finally, there was a generation that came out of Egypt. And you thought, this is the generation that's going to experience that promise. But Forty years now, that generation had wondered. For 400 years, they had waited. Forty years, they had wandered in the wilderness. They, their, their lives were so filled with unbelief that God said, you'll never enter in. And they found themselves wandering in the wilderness. Pause here for just a second. Does the wilderness conjure up any sense of maybe that's where your life is. The wilderness is a place of barrenness and dryness. It's a place where things aren't the way that you would always imagine them to be. And maybe you're a Christ follower and your, your Christian life, with all due respect, is just pretty dry. And cynicism and unbelief has set in. And you're trying to figure out your life, and your life just seems like one merry-go-round after another. You get off the merry-go-round the same place you got on, and you've been nowhere. 
And that's your life. It's going nowhere. Waiting and wondering. And now this generation, this group of people, God says, there it is. But you got to go through the Jordan. You can't go around it. you got to go through it. And many of them, no doubt, remember the story of how that early on when God had delivered the children of Israel from the Egyptian army, how that Moses had taken the staff and struck the water and it had parted. This time, God wasn't doing that ahead of time. He wasn't going to part the water for them. He said instead, I want you I want the priest, I want the spiritual leadership, I want them to put their feet in the water, the flood stage water, and then I'll part it, but not until you put your feet in it. Not until you put your feet in it. With all of that and this wonderful story, it's beginning to kind of fill your mind with imagining what it must have been like. Can you imagine being a family there, looking at all of those raging waters and saying, I'm going to take my kids through that? Can you imagine uh, people that uh, were of a, 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 a personal kind of, uh, they just maybe are at a place where the idea of any kind of physical effort like that is just impossible, and yet God said, just step into the water and watch, and we'll leave the wilderness behind. But there's one key verse, and I want us to spend just some time on it this morning. And it goes back to verse 5, and I want you to just settle in with me for a few minutes as we walk through this particular verse, because I think it's key before you ever experience the great that God has in mind, the, the promise that maybe you've been wondering, uh, waiting for, maybe you've been in the wilderness and say, I want to get out of the wilderness. Look at this verse again. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonderful things. The word consecrate, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that literally means full hands. Full hands. And there's two sides of it, and those two sides describe for what, what we're going to talk about is the before principle. Before you can experience the promises that God has in mind for you, as you anticipate, God has this promise for my life. This is what he wants for me. This is what he's designed for me. God says, here, this has to take place over on this side. Consecrate yourselves. And there's two sides to it. The first side of consecration is cleansing. It's the ideal of getting rid of. It you begin to look at your life and you begin to see things that have become a part of your life and it's gotten all cluttered up and there's, there's certain kind of tendencies and habits and rhythms and, and places where you've just been drawn into and, and things that you're doing that you know deep down in your heart, that's not good. And even to the point where it's rebellion against what God, you know God would have you to do, and there's just this, this sinful impulse in your life that you've been trying to push away, but it's gotten too big of a hold of your life, and you've picked it up from just the way you've been living your life, and God says, you don't need that in your life. And that, that's not just for a few people, that, that's for all of us. And what he's saying there is, all of us have all of us have these issues, and we pick it up on a daily basis in our life, and you've got to get rid of all of that. Get rid of. I don't know what that may look like for your life, but here's something I think a lot of times we don't understand about sin. 
At the heart of sin, the essence of sin is mistrust. The essence of sin is mistrust. It's basically saying, God, you can't be trusted. And God, I'm not going to step into this. I'm not going to follow this. I'm not going to do this because, God, I am questioning, just like Adam and Eve did, when they questioned the goodness of God. Is God keeping something from me? It's mistrust. And then there's something else about sin that I think we don't understand. A lot of times people say, uh, you know, uh, you know if, you, if you sin, if you're, you've developed certain kind of patterns and habits in your life and rhythms that are sinful, there's going to be consequences. And so all of a sudden you begin thinking about all the horrible things that could happen to your life because you sin, and then it doesn't happen. And you think, well, I got by with it. Here's the truth about sin that I, I don't think many of us think about. I'm not so much concerned about the consequences and horrible things happening to my life when I willfully disobey God and I develop habits in my life that are sinful. I'm not as concerned about that because here's the greater consequence of sin. I miss out on all God has for me. It keeps me. It diminishes his great things that he wants to do in my life. I'm missing out. That's my biggest fear. I don't want to miss out on a thing that God has me. You're saying, well, it's not any big deal. I, I, you know, I'm living my life. It doesn't seem to be too bad. Listen, no, it doesn't seem to be too bad because you have no idea what you're missing. No idea. I get passionate about that because as we used to tell our kids all the time, we have three adult kids and ten grandkids and one great-grandchild. Uh, hard for me to imagine that. I know I don't look old enough uh, to have a great-grandchild. But we used to tell our kids, hey, hey, we are not, we, we don't, we're not worried about you that you would want too much. We're just, we just don't want you to settle for too little. Don't settle for too little. And we think we're getting by with it. And all along, we're missing out. And consecration says, get rid of all of the, the clutter of your life, the sinful patterns of your life, the habits of things that you're doing and things that you're ignoring that God has put in your path and he's called you to do. And you're saying, no, no, no. Be, be honest about them. Come to grips with those and get rid of it. Own it. Repent of it. Say, I don't want that in my life anymore. That's the first side of consecration. The second part of it, not only get rid of, but the second part is let go of. Let go of. That's where the full hands. It means to come before the Lord and you all of your life, every part of it, relationships, finances, uh, your life agenda, your dreams, everything. He says, you come to that with me and with full hands, and, with, and you hold on to it loosely, and you say, God, it's, it's yours. Full hands. Holding on to it loosely. Do whatever you want to do. I'm canceling my life agenda. God, it's yours. That's consecration. Get rid of, yes, but more importantly, let go of. C.S. Lewis put it this way. 
Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your money, your work. I want you. Without reserve, without regret, without retreat. So many times we talk about Christ being first in our lives. And I've never liked that phrase because what that means is there are second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth things in our life. It shouldn't be Christ is first, our Christ and, it should be Christ over. Christ over every dimension, aspect of your life. I like the way that Mike Bro put it in a paragraph years ago, and I've, I've gone back to this several times. Read it up on the screen with me as you think about what that life of consecration looks like. God's will for your life is more about who you are becoming in terms of your relationship to God rather than where you are going or what you are doing. We can relax when we discover God has a future for my life and I don't have it. It's not in my mind, but rather in the heart and the hands of Almighty God. I am trusting that he knows what he's doing with my life. My responsibility is simply to draw close to him and follow as he leads to go wherever he wants to take me. Can we be cool with that? Get as close to the Father's heart as you can. And you won't worry. You'll go without knowing. Get as close to the Father's heart as you can. And you'll wait on God's timing without knowing when. Get as close to the Father's heart as you can. And you'll expect God to do a miracle even though you don't know how he'll do it. Get as close to the Father's heart as you possibly can. And you'll trust God's purposes without having everything to be explained to you. Now to be sure, please listen to me. And this is from Mark Batterson and he speaks in a very direct manner. And I want you to listen to these words. It's not up on the screen. But he says a lot of times we get consecration confused with things that we're supposed to do. And he reminds us that Follow, listen to me closely here. It's not daily devotions. It's not fasting. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not sharing the gospel with friends. It's not giving God the tithe. It's not repeating the sinner's prayer. It's not volunteering for a ministry. It's not leading a small group. It's not raising your hands in worship. It's not going on a mission trip. All of those things are good things, but that isn't consecration. It's more than behavioral modification. It's more than conforming to a moral code. It's more than doing good deeds. It's something deeper, richer, truer. The word consecrate means to set yourself apart. By definition, consecration demands full devotion. It's dethroning yourself and enthroning Jesus Christ. It's the complete divesture of all self-interest. It's giving God veto power. It's surrendering all of you to all of him. It's a simple recognition that every second of time, every ounce of energy, every penny of money is a gift from God and for God. Consecration is an ever-deepening love for Jesus, a childlike trust in the heavenly Father, and a blind, wonderful obedience to the Holy Spirit. Consecration is all that he finishes, and a thousand things more. 
But for the sake of simplicity, let me give you my personal definition of consecration. Consecration is going all in and all out for the all in and all in all. All in and all out for the all and all. Over here, God says, here's the promise. This is the greatness I've got in mind for you. But you can't get there until you consecrate yourself. You get rid of. You let go of. That had to be said before they could ever cross over. And then he says, when you do that, the amazing will happen. The amazing will happen. Before I close, I want to ask you a series of questions. Questions I can't answer, but only you can answer them. Okay? Now let me set it up one more time. You can live over here with a wilderness mindset, unbelief, holding on to a life that's cluttered up with disobedience, missing out, thinking that your life is all about you and giving God whatever leftovers you have, doing good things, thinking that's enough. Or you can say, God has this fullness of life this great scheme and plan and purpose for my life, wrapped around the purpose and personality of Jesus, of his life. So, which one? Which one? And in between stands this raging water of the impossible. It doesn't seem like you could ever get over to that. And he says, step out. Take one step, one step of trust. Trust me. So here are the questions. Here's the first one. What is standing between you and the future God has for you? What is it? What do you need to let go of? What are you holding on to? For some of you, there's a relational breakdown over here, and you know until you let go of that and the resentment that you can't move forward. For some of you, there is, it is so clear that God has pointed out that some, there's some stuff in your life that just attitudes and dispositions you just need to deal with them. There's this idea that God is calling you to go to a place or stay in a place. There's a relationship you need to walk away from or a relationship you need to move closer to. What is standing between you and the future God has for you? What is it? Hardness of heart, what is it? Unforgiving spirit, what is it? What is it? Here's the second question. 
Is your life filled, filled with a dangerous, with a sense of dangerous wonder? I love this question because it says, you remember what we read earlier? Never been this way before? How many of you would love to be in the never been this way before? To experience what God has for you. Is that something you wake up every day thinking, I wonder what God's up to today in my life? Third question. What is the condition of your heart? Is it all in and all out? Or the all in all? We lived in Louisville, Kentucky for several years and Part of the time we lived there, we lived a block and a half from, away from the world's most famous racetrack, Churchill Downs. And we get caught up in that. And probably, I don't know how much you know about uh, Kentucky uh, horse racing and the great horses of the years, but perhaps the greatest of all thoroughbreds was Secretariat. And when Secretariat died, Big Red, in October of 1989, they, they did a, a, an autopsy. And here's what they found. And amazing. All horses' organs were normal in size except for the heart. The doctor said, I've seen and done thousands of autopsies on horses and nothing like, like I've seen compared to this. The heart of the average horse raised, weighs about nine pounds. This was about twice the average size and about a third larger than any horse heart I've ever seen. All the chambers and valves were normal. It was just large. I think that told us why he was able to do what he did. All in, all out for the all in all. Question four. Where is God asking you to take a step of faith? Insane courage. Step into it. Step into it. I had been a lead pastor for 35 plus years and five years ago, Gail and I realized a dream and an opportunity God had put in our hearts when we first visited Boston in 1985. And when we stepped into it, we had no idea what God was getting ready to do. But that one step, that one step of step, stepping into something we had no idea what we were getting into, that one step opened up what we never would have imagined we get to do these days and get to be a part of. Even though all our kids lived south, we were the ones that moved. They didn't. And we get to be a part of it, and they get to be a part of it with us. Question number five. This builds on what I just said. How is your life building up the faith of others? Hey, when you live this way, it is passed on to your kids, and they want to live that same way as well, and future generations are blessed because of it, just like the nation of Israel. And then, this final question, not a whole lot of comment. But what has God done in your life that is worth remembering? What has God done in your life worth remembering? So, as I wrap up, wilderness, the promising future that God has in mind for you, the great things, the amazing things that he's never done before. Which side? Consecration. 
step of faith, the waters will part and you'll cross over into the future God has for you. This past January, as we often do, we are called to our, our national headquarters are just outside of Atlanta, Georgia in Alpharetta. We have a wonderful training facility there and Behind the training facility is this reflective pond and with a walkway around it. And I'd been going through some personal just, uh, God, what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next? And I couldn't see my way through. And what is it I need to let go of? God, what do I need to get rid of? Where am I not willing to take a step of faith? And so I got there early one morning, about between 5.30 and 6. It was still dark and and I begin to walk around that reflecting pond in the, in the darkness. And as I was walking around in this January morning, I just crying out to God, God, what is it I need to get rid of? Where, 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 where am I not listening to you? What do I need to let go of? And I begin to just feel this wave. And I'm not an emotional person outwardly. And I just, did, I just began to feel this wave of emotion come over me. And I finally found myself literally dropping on my knees. And just crying out to God these three phrases. Glad surrender. Eager willingness. Sacrificial obedience. I just cried those out to him. Glad, surrender, God, it's, I, I want the joy of being fully yours. Eager, God, I can't wait. Sacrificial obedience, God, I'm willing to let go of what I love for what I love more, and that's you. So where are you this morning? Oh, no, wrong question. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? The message version sums it up pretty well in Romans 12, reflecting on the incredible what, gift of what God has done for us in Christ. Listen to it as I, as I close with these words. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it everything without thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Here's what I want you to do. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking in place before God as an offering. Let's pray. Father, we cannot get a better picture of what we uh, experience in our relationship with you when we come before you with glad surrender, eager willingness, and sacrificial obedience, because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. There was that glad surrender, there was that eager willingness for the joy set before him. He endured the shame of the cross.
for our sake. Sacrificial obedience. He gave up his own life because of a greater love for us. Father, I would pray that across this room, if there are people who wonder how much you, the lengths you've gone to, to give them all the promising future you have for them in Christ, may they see what Jesus did on the cross and say yes today. My guess is the vast majority of people in this room, Father, are at that place of whether or not they want to stay where they are or whether they want to go where they've never been before and experience all the great, amazing things you have in mind. Father, I pray that no one in this room would die in the wilderness, but would enter into your fullness of all that you have for us in Christ. And all you have for this church is they lean into that promising future consecrating our lives, stepping out in faith one step at a time. You'll part the waters. And when that happens, all around us, the world will see the mighty hand of God. And when they do, their hearts will be opened to the gospel we so love to share. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.